Hello, and thank you for joining Women of Color Advancing Peace and Security. My name is Ashley Burrell. I'm the Secretary of the Board for Women of Color Advancing Peace and Security. We will be producing monthly podcasts featuring women of color in the peace and security field. So please visit WCAPS.org regularly for more details. Angela Booth Rayburn is currently serving as Associate Director for Advocacy at the Global Health Advocacy Incubator, which is a Bloomberg Philanthropies program. Previously, Mrs. Bruce Rayburn worked as a senior policy advisor for the humanitarian response in Haiti at Oxfam in the aftermath of the earthquakes in 2010. Prior to joining Oxfam, Angela was the president of Junior Achievement of Sacramento. Born in Trinidad and Tobago, Angela grew up in Brooklyn, New York. Her immigrant experience drove her interest and commitment to choosing a career where she would be able to impact and improve the lives of people living in the developing world. Intrigued with politics, Angela majored in political science at Lincoln University, where she received a Bachelor of Arts degree. Angela was selected by Rotary Foundation to receive a Rotary Ambassadorial Scholarship for Graduate Study in Peace Studies at Catholic University of Levin in Belgium. Upon completion of the degree in 2005, Angela received the Rotary World Peace Fellowship to study conflict resolution at the University of Bradford in England, completing that degree in 2006. Returning to the U.S. in 2006, Angela received the Congressional Black Caucus Fellowship with a work placement in the office of the former CBC chairperson, Congresswoman Carolyn Kilpatrick from Michigan. Angela focused on human trafficking and modern-day slavery. Fluent in French, Angela holds three master's degrees in public administration, peace studies, and conflict resolution. Mrs. Bruce Rayburn is, found, is the founding principal of Diverse Dev, an organization dedicated to starting conversations about diversity and inclusion in the development sector. We will cover a number of topics from the social, political, and economic situations affecting Haiti's most vulnerable populations, diversity and inclusion in the aid sector, microaggressions affecting non-white workers, racism, colonialism, global development, and lastly, but most importantly, sexual exploitation and abuse in the AIDS sector. So let's just jump into Haiti. Agriculture provides employment for half the national workforce in Haiti and makes up 28% of the GDP. Tropical storms flood farms, devastate plantations, erode soil, and sweep away crops, resulting in fewer agricultural resources in a country with extremely high food insecurity. Currently, 390,000 remain in the makeshift camps down from the estimated 1.5 million after the earthquake. Many have now lost what little shelter they had as Isaac, the last tropical storm, swept away flimsy homes such as tents and tarps, as well as personal belongings. Shows social, political, and economic situations affecting Haiti's most vulnerable populations has once again been marked by social political tensions. Tensions that have led to stoppages in economic and social activities in Port-au-Prince and other cities. Given that these tensions are countrywide, the situation is affecting a large part of Haiti's population who are dependent on trade with large cities for supplies and access to basic services. Since 2010, the economic situation has continued to deteriorate. The cost of living has increased due to a 23% depreciation of the national currency over the preceding six months. 
This increase combined with social political tensions and low agricultural productivity led to an 11% increase in the monthly price of basic food basket in February and a 26% increase compared to the year before. Recurring social protests have had an impact on humanitarian activities and limited people's access to, to assistance. Can you talk a little about the social, political, and economic situations that are affecting Haiti's most vulnerable and the recurring social protests that are affecting humanitarian actors? So, yeah, thank you for, um, you know, it's, it's a really, as you know, complex question and there are no easy answers. Uh, people have been, you know, talking for years, scholars talking about Haiti and about why and how and what can we do? And there's always the disaster. And then there's always the onslaught arrival of a lot of aid. And then it dries up and the cycle begins again. And we wait for the next disaster and then more aid comes. So it's a cycle that has been, you know, perpetuated uh, um, with a lot of, uh, blame to go around in the international community, most certainly. But Haiti, you know, it's funny because it's a country where Haitians have become accustomed to so much of this uh, social uh, unrest and all these, um, you know, the protests. Haitians, they, they live with, these, with the uncertainty They've, all, they've lived with it for many years. And so they kind of go through the process. Um, and when things get to be totally difficult and outrageous, then, they, then there's you know, protests in the street, like currently. Um, part of what is happening right now is connected to, of course, you know, the way uh, Venezuela and Petro-Caribe um, and the loans to Haiti um, through oil that allowed the country to to survive in, in the years since um, 2006, after I think uh, the Petro-Caribe relationship was developed, or maybe 2005. Combine that with the fact that so, the NGOs and on the ground, having started, you know, having come back to the country in 2010, after the earthquake, many of them, hundreds and hundreds of NGOs, being in charge of delivering services, almost 80% of the various services that people were accessing after the earthquake were coming from NGOs. But NGOs don't have an unlimited amount of money. So what happens is after they, they run out of money because they do massive fundraising when there's a thing like a tropical storm or there's a, or a hurricane or a earthquake, right? And then they raise a ton of money and then they come in the country and they spend money um, and they bring their staffs and they do all that. And then, of course, the money runs out and then they leave. And then the people are left exactly where they were before because so much of what they're doing is delivering services, but not really um, um, improving the, 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 the baseline issues that people need, which is better employment, which, and in some cases, just employment. Um, those things are not getting improved. So what is happening is that NGOs bring, you know, temporary amounts, you know, clean water, or they'll uh, have a temporary um, um, health care center, um, and they'll they'll have doctors there for a temporary period of time. But in the long term, and most of what NGOs bring is humanitarian relief, right? They bring the immediate 
what needs to happen right now. Right now, we need to save lives. We need to make sure people get access to water. We need to access food. We need to make sure the kids are going to school and not living on, on not, not running in, in the streets in the daytime. Um, we need to do that. And so people come in doing humanitarian things. But when the conversation shifts, and it always shifts to development, right, which is longer term, that's when the conversation gets complex. So combine these things, the problems that's stemming from the way uh, uh, Venezuela um, as, as, has deteriorated as well, um, and, and, and the problems with Petro-Caribbean money, um, the corruption in terms of the Senate report that was just issued, um, talking about the corruption and how much money that the, the, um, the president has, been, has taken, um, or allegedly taken, um, you combine that with the fact that NGOs are also struggling. So you have this volatile mix of, 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 of poverty, uh, need, corruption, and, and it's coming to a head. And that's what you see some of these manifestations in the country over the last couple of weeks that have, um, that, that, uh, that every time there's something uh, that happens where there's a, a conversation around corruption and how much people are stealing and what money is being taken out of the treasury, people are getting angrier and angrier and angrier. So all that is what really has combined to make this what we have today. But I want to say that might be today, but this was a conversation in 2010. It was a conversation in 1995. It was a conversation in 1985, 1980. This is an ongoing cyclical issue that, 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 we, that we come up against it and we talk about it. So the question, so what, what are the solutions, right? How do we even come to a point where we can make heads or tails about what's going on in Haiti and how can we help? As a person who, my first opinion about all that would, sit, would be, I feel that Haitian people have their own, um, they know what they need in their country. And I've often felt that the NGOs and the arrival of foreign people in the country has exacerbated other pro the, the problems as well. Because NGOs and foreign people come with their ideas about what needs to happen without real voice given to Haitian people. So, so even, even, in the, even in how to solve their own problems, Haitian people um, have really struggled in terms of what, how they're viewed and perceived by the international community and by people coming into their countries. So, 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 I, so my first opinion about that is that Haitian people need to be at the forefront of this conversation. Because of the conversation around corruption that has been so, so problematic in the country, it, is, it, is, it is, has created this idea in the international community that, that corruption is so endemic in the country that, they, that, that nothing can happen because of the corruption. I say to that, that that is not fair or accurate in many ways and that the international community has to understand has to accept that these people know what's best for them and how can they they're the ones that need to drive the changes in their country so i guess a long long answer and i am just to say that we have talked about this over the last 50 years so i say now that any solution we have to change the paradigm about how we 
we talk about Haiti, how we work in Haiti, this idea that you come down here, you bring me money for, for, for six months to a year to two years, then when the money dries up, you run back out. That development model has not worked in Haiti. It has been actually a disaster for the country, and, it's not, and, and the international community has to accept that. And Haitian people as well, Haitian government has to reject this kind of short-sighted arrangement that we have had with this country for so many years. Okay, <clears throat> thank you for that. Um, that's excellent. I had a few follow-up questions, but it seemed like um, you answered a few of those. So I'll just <laughs> jump into the next topic, which is diversity and inclusion. We should not just include diversity for value, but diversity for effectiveness. So at WCAPS, it is our sincere belief that we derive strength from diversity. Diversity is a unique source of strength for American society, our economy, and our national security. We must ensure that our federal workforce reflects the American people it serves. The United States needs to make greater strides towards harnessing the extraordinary range of backgrounds, cultures, perspectives, skills, and experiences of the population of the United States toward keeping the United States, United States safe and strong. The 2015 National Security Strategy recognized that the diversity of the national security workforce of the United States is a strategic asset that enhances the ability of the United States to lead on the global stage. In March 2011, the Military Leadership Diversity Commission demonstrated that minorities and women are still underrepresented among the top leadership of the armed forces as compared with the members they lead. Although African Americans, Latinos, and Hispanics, and Native Americans, and Asians represent 34% of the workforce of the United States, in 2016, only 10 and 13% respectively of the 22 senior positions in civil service and foreign service at the State Department were occupied by members of these groups. The same trend can be seen in think tanks and development sectors. So what does implicit bias look like in international development and how does that manifest in concrete things like the wage gap and leadership imbalances? It, it, what it looks like is who do we perceive as being leaders? It's about perception, right? Leadership. You look, you look at television, you look at the news, you look ev everywhere around you, there's a certain person that's talking, certain person in leadership. It's no different in international relations and foreign policy. The people who, so, so the bias, the bias is that, is, is the de facto understanding of who is, is there to lead. Oftentimes you, you look at, you go to meetings and you see, um, you see, you see a black woman in the meeting and you're not automatically thinking she's the leader of the meeting. You're not automatically thinking that. And she may be the leader of the meeting, but that's not the, the immediate thing that you think. And that sort of perception and the way we have our own biases around certain people, this has manifested itself now in a way that is very dangerous for us as a country and certainly for black, black for for black women, and I'm gonna speak about black women because I, I often get people asking me, you know, why don't you say, you know, black and brown people? And I'm not discrediting or, or, or not choosing to discuss other groups of people. I speak often about the issue of black women simply because my experience is that. And I really try to bring some concreteness to my, to my experience without speaking for other women about whom I don't really know the nuances. So I speak about black women and I say that 
in the space, in, in, in the space of development and international relations, foreign policy, we are the group of women in the space where we may have the right education, we may have a myriad of experiences, but what has happened is that we have not been able to really build up a strong enough network to allow us to connect. So by not being able to connect to people in the larger organizational structure of foreign policy apparatus, we're not the first people that, you, that, that are thought about when the jobs open, when there are big opportunities for advancement and for positions. Um, for positions. We're not the first people because our networks are not as strong. And so we are, again, competing in a very different way than other women. There are many times where you send in an online application and you're just not going to get a call because you are not on the radar of anyone in this organization. But then there are, but there are women, uh, certainly white women or other women who have a network and who may have internal people that can say to them, come to apply to this job. And because of our weakness in many of our networks, we, and we don't understand how to strengthen them, and we don't, um, and, and, and to be frank, what we have is this, um, you know, when we get to the big job, a lot of times we spend a, a lot of, of our energy and focus trying to stay in, the, in that job and to do it well. And so we don't, necessarily focus on women in the rear view mirror, women that are coming behind us. Mm -hmm. And I speak a lot about that because I think that is a way for us to improve mm -hmm. our ability to really get into some of these higher level positions where we can look at what is what at the people behind us or coming behind us for work and say, how can we bring more diverse perspectives? How can we bring women that, under, that have a, a different uh, upbringing, socioeconomic upbringing? Maybe they didn't go to uh, Ivy League school, but maybe they went to an HBCU where that brought them a, a, a specific perspective that can be brought to, to, to bear in these uh, foreign policy conversations. And I, so I think that a combination of things, I think our lack of networks that are really strong, our ability to connect to the broader apparatus has been fraught with struggle. Um, and I think that not always being clear about, you know, you know, who, you know, the best degrees or the best schools and how do we get into the best academic institutions and, and what does it take to get into these institutions? And when you come out, how do we connect to the networks that these institutions really, you know, foster? And because of all those areas where I think we have been very, we've been weaker, we've struggled to really break in. And you see it right now, you see it manifesting itself in the fact that we currently have a president that tells four congresswomen that they need to go back to where they came from. So you think about what that means in a, in a global way, right? You think about all the people around the world who hears this comment and they're looking at these black women and they're thinking, go back to where you came from, which is where exactly? Is it the Bronx? Is it Michigan? Where are, you, are we speaking about? And what does that mean when you say that? And how, and, and all the racist tropes that come from that. And so you see how black women are constantly playing this kind of uh, catch up, right? And when they get into Congress, then they're also, also bombarded by this, by this new level of racism that comes their way. 
And so we are, we, we constantly are in a fight, in a battle to be accepted, to be respected, to be treated fairly, to be treated with equal pay. And, 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 and this current situation with the president just really underscores how vulnerable we are when you have congresswomen being the subject of this kind of attack. Can you imagine someone like these congresswomen and then a, a, a black woman like me or like you or other women listening to this without the, 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 the notoriety and, and all that of, of congresswomen, um, <laughs> picture how they live in the workplace when they're constantly fed this kind of, um, these kinds of racist tropes and all that. So I say, we have, we have, we have to make a, an intentional uh, a, a, a plan. Uh, we have to be purposeful about how we, we, we bring other women into the, into the, game, in, into the field. And certainly black women need to really step up their game when it comes to uh, net building and, and creating and, and, and nurturing the network. Yeah, I, I definitely agree with you. And I think WCAPS has really done an excellent job and continues to do a great job of really uh, bringing that network together and um, harnessing all of our different um, expertise and um, sure. Uh, sure. backgrounds um, to really uh, bring us to the forefront and um, having us network with other organizations in the D.C. area. So I think it's a conversation definitely that needs to continue to happen. Um, um, recently, WCAPS released uh, a, a, a letter denouncing President Trump's um, statements about um, the four Congresswomen. So I read I, it. <laughs> oh, oh, great, great. I'm glad you had a chance to read that. I hope others will read that as well. So moving on, um, you've written a few op-ed pieces on the topic of diversity and inclusion, including your piece titled, But Wait Until They See Your Black Face. Now, um, I had the opportunity to reading that, and I also read some of the comments um, that came out after that. So can you explain what prompted you to write the op-ed piece specifically, and how yeah. you blog illuminating something that is symptomatic of a broader problem? Right. So, wait until they see a black face was a joke between my husband and me. Because before LinkedIn, we used to always, you know, the old days when you would send out your resume and they would see, you know, you're, you're, you know, you speak fluent French and okay. And, you know, my name is just, you know, pretty nondescript, you know, and then my husband would, and I would send out a resume and I'd get a call on the phone, you know, um, before LinkedIn. And you would say, um, and the person would say, you know, we can't wait to meet you. You know, wow, your resume is so impressive. And I'd get all that. And then I'd show up and my, my husband would say, man, wait till they see your black face. And we thought, for us, it was just a funny thing for us. But we, it, it hit me that I struggled to break into international relations. I had three master's degrees. My French is fluent. I took internships all over the place because I was trying to get the right resume. And it occurred to me one day that no matter what I did, my resume was just not ever going to be right because I feel that this blackface impacted me. And so I wanted to write about the experience of trying to beat the application tracking system. And then um, I had volunteered in Haiti after the earthquake. 
I had written my dissertation for graduate school on Haiti. So I felt that when this job came open at Oxfam, I felt I was really qualified because other than the fact that I was not Haitian, but I was from the Caribbean. And I felt that that gave me some kind of insight into that part of the world. And so it occurred to me that I was going to this interview with people who had been in Haiti for a week, with people who, who had an internship in, in some organization and went to Haiti and that were nowhere near as knowledgeable or vested in what happened in that country more than me. And it struck me as one of those moments when I thought I should write about this. And so I wrote it because I wanted to talk to other women, sisters like me, who had the education, had the foreign language, had everything, and yet they just could not break in. And what, why, why couldn't they break in? What was the reason behind some of these kinds of things that you don't really understand, you can't really put your finger on? So I decided that I wanted to write about it. And that, that, that's where it came from. And yes, a lot of comments. Um, you know, people, I, so I got two sets of comments, right? I got comments from black women globally who wrote to me from, every, I'm talking from the Caribbean. That article single-handedly brought me, I would say, 200 new friends on LinkedIn, new, new connections, I'm easy, easily. Women writing me who had read the DevX article and saying, what you said exactly was my feeling. And it really made me realize that I had touched on a nerve. Because what happens with us is, I think, is that we get silent. We get silenced because we don't want to be whiny. We don't want to be complainers. So instead of calling it what it is, we, 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 we're quiet, right? Because we don't want to say, wait a minute. Why am I in this, in this conversation with you and you've been to Haiti for a week and you know nothing about the country, you haven't learned anything about the country, about the language, about the people. When, when these NGOs go down there, a lot of times these people stay behind their, their big gate, you know, in the, in the houses that they are renting. They don't go outside. They don't go to the market. They don't know anything about Haitian people or, what pe or, or the lives of the people beyond just the, you know, the sort of superficial. So I was a little offended by that when I was in Haiti, to be honest, right? When I was in Haiti, I was irritated by meeting these, you know, uh, young, and I'm not trying to put young people down, but I'm saying I met the 25-year-old woman who was in Haiti for a week. And now she gets to write a big story about Haiti. And then she gets to come back to her home. And next thing you know, she's working for a congresswoman or a senator or the UN or whatever. And I'm thinking, how do you make that leap? Seriously. So because of that, I felt compelled to really put some words to my feeling, which was a lot, back then it was a lot of anxiety about it, um, uh, to put some words to what I thought it was, which was this kind of systematic 
exclusionary um, practice that exists in international development where certain people are country directors, mostly white males. I know these people. I saw them in Haiti driving around in the big NGO trucks, going to the best restaurants in the, in the country, eating at the best places, doing all of that. That's what I saw. And I realized that, so people like me trying to break in was, was maybe what people didn't want to deal with people like us at the time, I think. Um, and so my article was just basically to give a voice to it and to say, I know what's happening and I'm going to call you out every single time. And, 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 and so that's where it evolved from. And last thing I would say on that is I wrote a follow-up to it to just bring some of the voices of the women who had written to me. And I put some of the things that they said to me in that article, in, in, my, in the second follow-up to wait until they see a black face. And, and that was designed to say, I am not alone. I have sisters from around the world who wrote to me and said, thank you. Thank you for putting a voice to, to, to our, our, what we think, but we don't want to be whiny. We don't want to be complaining. We don't want to say anything because we don't want to appear as though we're using the race card. I got all those kinds of comments from women around the world saying that if you say that, people are going to accuse you of calling using the race card. And you know what I thought? Let them. I don't care at this point because I feel like there's something happening here that is that has prevented us from really being in the field in a more in a more visible way. And I wanted to call it what it was. That's excellent. That's excellent. So this is a field where getting along leads to advancement. Everyone yeah. is trying to get along all the time. As a person of color, it is a double-edged sword. We are laden with negative stereotypes that we encounter regularly. If you are a minority and you are in a position of leadership, the challenge of sitting at the head of the table is, is, is if you are a minority and you take a risk and you fail, you're paying a price, a price not just for yourself, but for others that look like you if you, if you fail. Your risk aversion is much higher in a world where leadership is rewarding innovation, entrepreneurship, risk-taking. As a minority, you don't have that margin of error. Failure from minority could risk your career. Should we really look at what leadership means and what leadership looks like? How can people think more broadly about what it means to be a leader? How do you get introduced? How do you get noticed? How do you get past these setbacks? Right. Yeah, so this question came up, I was on a, another panel, and there was someone who asked a question exactly like this from the audience about our, our especially Black women, how risk averse we sometimes are. And putting, putting an, uh, something, a voice to that specifically, because we all know, um, we, we know that when we fail, all, we, we, we're failing for Black women in, who are gonna come after us. We're failing for the black women that are already there. And so, you're, so for me, I think I've thought a lot about this in the last year because I get asked the question all the time about um, if I'm not afraid to speak. People ask me in you know, LinkedIn, people send me messages sometimes, other black women saying, how did you say what you said on that panel and you didn't lose your job? And I have, you know, I have to, I had to, before, before I had got asked that question, I didn't really even, even, I didn't even really think about it a lot. But since I got asked that question, I've been thinking about it. And when I write things, how is what I'm writing being perceived um, in my current employment and how is it being perceived 
um, outside? And the answer for me is, at some level, I have come to the realization that I have to be, I have to speak my, my truth as best as I can, recognizing that there are people who may not want to hear it that could have an adverse impact on me. But I've been, this, I've been thinking that recently that every day that I say something that I feel needs to be said, I am, I am paying some gratitude to women who came before me. I'm paying gratitude to people like, you know, Harriet Tubman, for example. And I only use her because I feel like reading about her makes me think that if I'm so worried about my future, what must it have been like for someone like that, worrying about how do they stay alive in a time where she, you know, being murdered and, or anything happening to her was very easy to happen. So I've been thinking about that. And that's now... And, and, and I'm not young either, right? Meaning that I'm not at the beginning of my career. And I feel like I, a lot of, I feel like a lot of my time has already passed. And I feel like now I owe um, myself, but I owe my women in my age group. Um, um, and I owe young women who are going to come behind me to not, to not be afraid about anything at this point because I realized that I have already lost a lot of time. And so many things I've written now that I thought back in 2010 or that I thought back in 1995 that I didn't write because I didn't even understand that I had the voice. I, I didn't. I feel like this last few years, I really realized that I have the voice that it's my turn to make my statement and to make it because there are women who've made it before me who allowed me to even be standing right, right here right now. And because of that, I am not afraid. I am not fearful of things um, that I would have been fearful about, say, 10 years ago. I recognize that that's not true for everyone. And everyone don't have to go on panels and say things or everyone don't have to do that. But what you can do in your own small way in terms of leadership, and you don't have to be at the top of the organization to make this decision, in my opinion. But when you're the, if you're the black woman and you're in the hiring position, say you're on a hiring team, be the person that can, can look at the resumes. Be the, you know, so even if you're not the last person, be the person who can advocate to bring in this one resume right here that may not have every single thing that they want, but that there's potential there. You have opportunities to, 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 to make a difference in the lives of people every day, and you need to take them. So maybe my opportunity is that I, I can write fairly well, you know, and, 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 and I'm older and, I feel like it's the point in my life when I should be saying what I'm thinking about this work and why it matters as a black woman from the Caribbean, why I feel like I need to be very clear about what I feel. Um, that's my, my role. But maybe the role of the admin person in, 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 in some office is different. But I feel like we can't sit back and just say that we're not at the table without understanding that at various levels, 
we can have an impact. So that's what leadership is for me now. And even in my small way, because I don't consider myself in any way to, to have done anything extraordinary in, in, in the space. But what I realized is that by being able to write and say these things, what I've done is open a conversation where other women say, yeah, that's exactly what I was thinking. And so now that I know that that thing is not just me being whiny and complaining, let me open my mouth in my office, right? So I feel like that's my contribution and that's what I think leadership might look like and how we, and how we redefine what our leadership roles might be. Okay. And, and one more thing to say about that, just one more thing. I think that we need to also push back on what, you know, this idea of, you know, white male leadership, right? You know, you know, the Steve Jobs kind of model, right? This idea that you got to be mean and bad and you got to do this and that. I want to have, I want to also talk about leadership that is rooted in a culture of care, a culture of caring about individuals and people in these countries and speaking beyond just the work that we do, but also creating opportunities for people in these countries that we want to work in to hear what is happening with them, what is happening in their space, how is it impacting the work that they do, right? And creating something more than just, a, you know, ticking the box in the work that we do, right? So that's, that's my, my kind of small contribution to all of that. Well, that's excellent. So what would be your advice to young women of color who are interested in or just entering the field of foreign policy, peace and security and conflict transformation? I tell them connect to organizations like WCAPS and Black Women in Development and connect to them. And and be open, hear what they, hear how other women in the field have gotten in. And, and, and I would tell them, make friends, make connections with people who when jobs come open, people are thinking, you know what, I met this young lady um, at this event. Um, I'm gonna send her the, the job description and see if she's interested. Be understanding that you might have to take internships that um, may not be your, you may, you may not see it as a fast track to where you want to be, but sometimes those internships get you in the door. Um, that's what I would tell them. I tell them don't be don't be afraid to 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 um, to be bold and ask people to connect to them. I get emails all the time and 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 met and LinkedIn connections from young women all across the country as well as all over Africa and the Caribbean and, and and it's a basic email you know basic post that says hi Angela I read your um piece in Devic so I heard you on this podcast and you know can you just talk to me about and I have committed myself to saying absolutely send me a resume and I make it my responsibility because I feel like as a black woman, I did not have that when I was coming into the space and I struggled. And now that I am in the space, I, I feel it is absolutely an imperative that people like me who are in the space and I'm not in the CEO position. I, I have a, a very good position. I have a great job, but I just want to be the person who's going to constantly look at the resume. I'm going to respond to you and say, I think your resume looks really good, or maybe you need to change this or tweak that. There's a job opening in my office. Maybe you need to take a look at it. I'll take your resume to the hiring manager. That is what my commitment has been. And I tell young women, don't be hesitant to email and write and post and comment to people and ask other women to help you or other black women to help you, because I think that is what we need to do. 
Yes, I agree with you. Definitely agree with you. Well, thank you so much for your time. This has been excellent. I hope everyone enjoys this podcast. And thank you, Angela, once again. Thank you so much for asking me to be here. I appreciate it and all the work that you're doing. All right. Have a good one. Have a great afternoon. Bye-bye. Thank you for joining Women of Color Advancing Peace and Security. Please visit WCAPS.org. That's W-C-A-P-S dot org.